tonight. In his poem, uh, Invictus, William Ernest Henley wrote these words, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I don't know uh, the occasion of this poem for the author, but it sounds like or could easily be taken to mean that he's talking to God. It speaks of the narrow way and the straight gate. And if the way is narrow and the gate is straight so that there's only way in, which is Christ, those are very biblical words. And if my scroll is filled with things about me like unforgiven sins, it doesn't matter, the poet is saying. I decide my fate, not God or anyone else. It really is a poem about the triumph of the human spirit, which of course is blasphemy. But even we can live like this, even we can think like this, that we are the ones who control our fates, we are um, the captains of our own destinies. This would not only be sinful, even if it's unintentionally against the Lord, which it is, it's also tragically mistaken. Because there are certain immovable realities in this world, and God is the biggest one. This is our Father's world, and there is no freedom, security, or peace at all if we believe that we are the ones who are ultimately in charge of our lives and our destinies. This is the epitome of worldliness in James. To live each day with divine perspective is to live believing that I am in the Lord's hands and He is already directing my steps. Let me pray and we'll get into this last section of chapter 4. Our Father, we are thankful tonight for Your Word, God, for Your promise, and we thank You that You are sovereign over all things and there is no single space in the entire cosmos. What we know is there and what we don't that you do not declare mine. And so, Lord, we are thankful that we rest in your sovereign hand tonight. Give us the peace that is meant in your word to come to us because of it. Help us understand our lives in light of it. And please, Lord, help me speak tonight in such a way that I make it clear and enable everyone to listen with their minds and understand. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 13 of James chapter 4, he writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James chapter 4 is about worldliness. And here it's this idea that we are the masters of our own destinies. That we're so certain and so strong that we can determine our lives and the direction they take. But there are certain immovable realities. The first is this. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
We lack the knowledge to be dogmatic about ourselves and about our futures. We can certainly work hard to shape a certain kind of direction or future for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with this. But while we might do all that we can to shape a certain kind of future, we still don't know for sure what will happen tomorrow. We just don't, let alone years into the future. The second immovable reality then is that we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We can't know everything. In fact, we actually know very little compared to what is knowable. And the assumption in verses 13 and 14 is that this lack of exhaustive knowledge about tomorrow makes it unrealistic at best and arrogant in verse 16 in a moment to plan and um, assume about our lives without accounting for this fact, even down to the details. What is so bad about saying today, I think, or, or tomorrow we'll go to this town and we'll set up a business? And what's so wrong about that? The answer's in the text. The third immovable reality is that God's sovereign rule over us extends and lays claim to even the most mundane details of our lives. He is Lord there also. Paul Tripp said several years ago uh, in a seminar that if, 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 if the Lord doesn't rule your mundane, He doesn't rule you because the mundane is where we live. He is Lord there also. So what is our life? In the second part of verse 14, we, we are a mist. That's what we are. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We're not even the fullness of moisture. We're just a mist. So the fourth immovable reality is that we are not as important as we think we are. We are temporary and fleeting. Comparing us to a mere mist means it's almost as though we're so insignificant and helpless against the backdrop of reality that we're barely even here. We appear and are gone in God's reckoning like the morning mist. And just think about movies and literature and art and uh, music and media and the attitude of the world and ask yourself if, if, if the world agrees with that. Right? Is, is that man's common sense of self? Or is our sense of self so inflated that we are offended by God's majesty and sovereignty and authority over our daily lives. Mists ought not to tell reality that it doesn't know what it's doing. We appear and are gone. So the fifth immovable reality is that we are actually very fragile and very needy and completely dependent on another. We control nothing. The proper perspective, the oughtness with which we live our lives is to live saying, if the Lord wills, we will live in the first place and do this or that. The sixth immovable reality is that whether we live or do anything at all is ultimately dependent on the Lord's will. God's sovereignty extends over our lives and over our planning. In that sense, and here's we really want to think tonight because I doubt any of us really disagree with what James is saying here. But consider this. If this text is true, 
then in this sense we are always in the Lord's will. The Lord's will isn't something to be found. It just is. And the better way to pray and seek direction is to say, if the Lord wills, I will do what I plan on doing. And if He doesn't, I won't. In other words, to live each day with divine perspective is to live believing that I am in the Lord's hands and He is already directing my steps. We'll get briefly into, in our minds when, when we say that, that I'm already in the Lord's will, our minds start going, well, what about this and that? We'll, we'll get there. Just, just wait. But I don't, we don't move in and out of God's will for us. We really need to understand this. We, I'm not in His will when I make the right decisions among other possibilities I could have chosen. I'm in His will when I entrust my whole existence to Him and believe that whatever my lot may be, it is His lot for me and I am safe because He is my God and my Savior. I can't be out of the Lord's will ultimately. If I'm not doing or saying, saying something that God has forbidden, right, then I'm free to live my life. What we need to do is maintain the perspective that we aren't ultimately in charge of the future or the results. And what would it look like to live genuinely believing that as God's people in the world? This freedom is the freedom to live with my life entrusted to God as He does His will in me and for me. God's will is not a mystery we have to discover. The Bible never talks like this. We don't sin or miss God's best by choosing this job over that job, for example. And people will get, the, they'll, they'll get their stomachs in knots. Should I, should I take this job or this job? I, I need to find out what the Lord's will is. How do you do that in a 50-50 choice? How, if, if we're honest here, how do we come to that conclusion? Eventually, it's going to boil down to how you feel or to something that is actually superstitious rather than biblically motivated. But we don't need to live that way. The Bible doesn't talk like we need to live this way. We sin when we assume our lives are our own. And we can control our fates. And we are in charge of the future. And God isn't. This is what the Bible would call arrogance and boasting. In verses. Is that how we think about making plans? That they're arrogant and boastful. Again, the evil or the sin here is not the decisions we're making. Unless, of course, we're choosing sin or choosing to do what God has expressly revealed is not His will for us. The evil here is living as though God is not the King and Sovereign over our entire existence to the degree that we realize every step we take is according to His will. God's will is not, again, it's, it's not a mystery to be discovered. It's the place in which we live every day and action of our lives. We don't need to wait to do things until we get some sort of sign that, if you'll notice, usually serves what we wanted anyway. We need to acknowledge that God is already accomplishing His will in my life and then to live by faith. Why do we talk about we walk by faith and not by sight and then spend our whole lives looking for things to give us sight as to what we should do. 
right? We, we, we take an open door, whatever that may be. We, we go around looking for open doors. That's walking by sight. That's not faith. God takes us where He wants us to go. Right? My, my task is to acknowledge and trust Him where I am. Do I believe it's God's will for me to be in this church? Yes. Why? Because I'm the pastor. Right? If I wasn't, then it wouldn't be His will and vice versa. So, in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. That makes it very subjective. We don't really like that. That's a lot harder to operate in, right? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And in the immediate context of verses 13 through 17, the right thing to do must not be thought of as picking one way or one job or one college or making a decision to go this way and not that way, etc. over another. That's not what the right thing to do here is. That's not how the Bible describes God's will for us but as living from the divine perspective for each day. Where I am is where God would have me. Which if you think about it, that would truly be the life of faith. Because sometimes we don't want to be where we are. We don't want to be where God has us. And so we we convince us in our minds that there's this will of God for me that if I find it, then I'll be happy. Right? Then I'll be at peace and then I'll have everything I want. And that's the arrogance that the Bible is talking about. As though God doesn't know well enough to have me where I am. And He should have me somewhere else. I live most of my life sinning like that. Always thinking that it's, it's, the, it's the other church. It's the other town. It's the other thing that will actually answer all the questions in my mind and soothe all the issues in my soul and this is what the Bible is talking about here. This, the right thing to do when I don't know what to do is to realize that if the Lord wills, it will go this way or it will go that way and to have peace about it and to trust Him. The sin for me in decision making is to act as though I am in charge and God follows me. If the Lord wills, I'll go here. I'll pick that. I'll take this job. And if He doesn't, then I won't. That We often are looking for these amazing evidences of God's presence in our lives. As, you know, Lord, I need, I need proof that You're there. You're breathing, beloved. And You're a mist. He's there. Right? He's there. He's your God, your Lord. He knows exactly where you are. It's not that God doesn't want you to be somewhere else or something, necessarily. What we need to do is realize that because we're a mist that doesn't know everything and can't control everything, that where we are in this moment is where God would have us. Now, again, that gets very hard for our minds when you say, well, what about if the place I'm in is horrible and terrible or, or there's more to be said, but the principle stands. What is evil in terms of my daily perspective is the refusal to take into account the fact that I am secondary. I'm contingent. I'm dependent. 
God is none of those things. God isn't standing in front of us holding the right decision in this hand and a bad decision in this hand. And you and I have to figure out which one it is. Imagine, as a parent, would you do that to your kid? As a human being who is evil, would you do that to your kid? Who doesn't know hardly anything? But in this hand, you have something wonderful for them. And in this hand, you have something that wouldn't be good for them. Is that how we parent? Well, I mean, pick. Pick. I mean, I love you, but if you pick this hand, I can't help you. You're... Your life is over. It's ruined. Now, in the broader context of worldliness, in chapter 4 as a whole, we need to realize that as we come to this place in James 4, that fighting and quarreling in the church because of our unmet desires, giving in to our fleshly passions, is all in James 4. Murdering, hating our brothers and sisters, for not giving us what we want and the links that we'll go to to make them suffer until they do. Covetousness, faithlessness, spiritual adultery, friendship with the world, refusing to humble myself before God, refusing to live a life of repentance, selfishly judging others, and living as though I am the captain of my fate and I am the master of my soul, to the degree that I can determine my future. These are all worldliness. These are how God defines worldliness. Again, what we tend to do when the Word of God meets us and accuses us and reveals what we're really like, we tend to push everything out to the extremes. And so worldliness has become like, maybe you like bands that don't do Christian music. Right? Beloved, worldliness is making plans with no thought whatsoever that you have no power to make what you want to happen come about. In 13 through 17 of James chapter 4. And so you, we realize, okay, when am I not sinning? If, if you want to get technical, beloved, praise God that Jesus is a great Savior. It, it is not just the sins of commission. You, you probably heard it broken down like that. There's sins of commission. I'm doing something I shouldn't. And there's sins of omission where I'm not doing what I should. What we need to understand is that the, the omission is not ambiguous. Right? I mean, I could lay that on you all day long and just constantly every Sunday make you feel more guilty because your sins of omission involve you not doing the things that I think you should be doing. The Bible doesn't define the sin of omission that way. Here, knowing the right thing to do, which is knowing that I entrust my entire existence to God and not living like that is sin. And part and parcel to a worldly heart is the belief that I'm in charge of the direction of my life. Why would that be a sin? Because somebody else is in charge of my life and that someone else is God and apparently there's a way to live even as believers that we aren't taking that into account. God's will ultimately will be accomplished in us. And to continue to fight and push when God clearly has us in this space in this time and it's like this for us here. Again, we're not talking about sinning. We're talking about 
living life, making decisions, not doing horrible things and believing that that's God's will. It, it, right, it, um, how can people twist this? Because they do. Um, you know, uh, so if the Lord wills, I'll live and do this or that. So if I leave my wife and marry another woman, clearly that was the Lord's will. No, that's not what the Bible teaches us. That, that's not what's even, the text isn't even after that here. That's, that's kind of the whole point. Is that whatever situation God has you in, we need to remember that He's with us there and He loves us and He won't leave or forsake us. There's a reason this comes up, boasting about tomorrow, in the context of worldliness. When, in the beginning of chapter 4, the whole talk was about why do we fight and what causes fights and quarrels among you? Your passions are at war within you. Again, Last week, we, we talked about this. We always assume that there are church fights because of what other people are doing, and they don't do what we want, and, and that, that's it. They, they don't do what we want, so we fight and quarrel. Period. Now, what does that have to do with boasting about tomorrow? Because the way we make plans is us believing that my happiness tomorrow depends on getting what I want. And if you don't give that to me, and if you get in the way of what I want, even if it's God, I won't be happy. I can't be happy if I don't get what I want. That's what the whole of chapter 4 is about. That is sinful. I can't get what I want. I'm never going to be happy. No, beloved. We, God is your Lord. When you're frustrated and confused and disappointed, and when you're happy and everything is going well, you are in His will for you. He loves you. He is pursuing you with His mercy all the way to Himself. A worldly heart believes that it's in charge of the direction of its life. That's when we believe this. That's when we're at conflict within and without. Because I can't just, I can't just sit still where God has me. I have to get what I want. I have to go where I want to go. I need it to happen how I want it. The Bible calls that arrogance. It calls it boasting. We're mists. Who are we to make demands? Right? Just it, Most of the things we deal with in our lives are going to be matters of preference. And so... Why do we get to say the way it has to be? This text means it's not true that I'm in charge of my life. And I'm not in charge of your life. And I never have been. We, we aren't in charge of our lives. The text is meant to put that truth in us so that it directs us and guides us. Even if we end up in a horrible situation. And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about sinning and it is God's will that you would sin. No. We're talking about wherever we get. Right? Think about... So this would be heavier to think through. Okay? Think about losing a loved one that is precious to you. We can't understand what is happening. Grief and pain is not... It's, it, I don't even know how we... We don't really know how to deal with death. Okay? What we can know is that we are not being overlooked and forgotten when we end up there. 
anymore. I, we, that much we can know. I don't understand, God, what you're doing. I don't understand why this happened. But I do know on the authority of your word that you haven't forgotten about me because you aren't letting my life just something, stuff happens to me and then you catch up if I do the right stuff and say the right things and bring you into it. God is not only dishonored and sinned against by outright disobedience and rejection, of course, but also by our lack of recognition that we live under His will. This is why the Bible makes a big deal about complaining and murmuring and things like this and gossip. Because all that is saying, you're doing a bad job running my life, God. And so I have to jump in here and make some effort to bring about the result I want. Because you don't know what you're doing. Why? Because I'm not getting what I want. It all stems from the heart and its unwillingness in its rebellion to rest in the will and in the sovereignty of God for me. It's not always going to go how we want. right? Whether we complain and set a church on fire back in James 2 and 3 is a matter of the heart. Whether we set our marriage on fire and burn it down and our our home on fire, and all, all these things, they're the result of the heart not believing 13 through 17. God, you are running my life. We boast by living as though our steps are not directed by God. Like God comes in after the fact. When we think we're calling the shots, we're boasting. In fact, we're arrogant when we honestly believe that we are calling the shots. We may not think like that, but we, we probably do pray like that. We may pray to God in such a way that we just, we, again, we just want Him to keep up. When the Lord wills, we do. When He doesn't, we don't. He's that sovereign over us. So if we're not talking about sin, and it's not going our way, we have a choice to make. We can be arrogant and boastful, and fight to get our way because apparently the Lord doesn't know what He's doing. Or we can rest and say, if the Lord wills, I'll, I'll do this or that. If the Lord wills, I'll take a breath in a moment. And if He doesn't, I won't. It's that. He is that sovereign over me and over my life. And again, this raises some questions. Does that mean when I sin that it was God's will for me to sin? No. Well, how do we know that? For the text already told us back in one thirteen, God does not tempt us to do evil. If God does not tempt us to do evil, then He doesn't will for us to do evil. God isn't evil, doesn't do evil. This text doesn't mean that each and everything I do or experience means that was specifically God's will for me. Right? That would be really hard to try to understand. What it means is that my life is ultimately under the control of another. One I can trust. The text isn't really written to fuel debates about the extent of God's sovereignty. We can always kind of argue through that and work through that. It's written to remind us that our lives are ultimately in the hands of Almighty God, even down to the details. That we can understand. And however that works out, it's a massive comfort to know that He is not far off, is He? If this is true, God knows everything about me. Think of His wisdom and His sovereignty. 
How does he keep track of billions? Beloved, he is God. He is God. He's not far off from my daily life. He's not waiting for me to get things right. He's not dangling possibilities in front of me for me to discover with some spiritual magic decoder, right? He is for me. And He knows me. And He knows where I am. And He knows what is happening to me. And He's sovereign over my life. And so all I endure, God is aware of it. God is leading me and guiding me. He will be with me since I cannot move outside of His will in this sense. My life is in His hands. I can't take it out and create my own destiny for myself. The single most important thing we have to do as believers is grow increasingly aware of how badly we need Jesus to be both our forgiveness and our righteousness. Because the more Scripture we read and study, the more we're going to realize, I thought I had things together. And then I get over here and apparently it's sinful to make plans. Is it sinful to make plans? No. But there's something about the way a Christian ought to plan that is different from the rest of the world. Because we aren't just sinning when we do bad things over good things. Or say bad words over good words, etc. We're sinning just as grievously when we live our lives with no thought whatsoever that they don't belong to us. To live each day with divine perspective is to live believing that I am in the Lord's hands and He is already directing all of my steps. The point of the text tonight is not to teach us to always be sure to merely say if the Lord wills when we make plans. Right? Christianity is not a mantra religion like that. Like that's a that's a, like a little trinket or something that you have to get out. Uh, after church, if I can convince my family, I'd like to go to Acapulco for dinner and not get bitten by a dog this time. But if the Lord wills, we will. Right. So we we. I always think of this example because this is one time that my dad really um, really helped me understand something. And I, I, I'm sure I've told you about this before, so forgive me if it's been too recent. Okay, sometimes I honestly don't remember. I had been dating Christy for four years. Very much in love with her. Wasn't thinking about marriage for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why. But my dad and I were driving to, uh, there used to be this Christian bookstore released in Columbus called the Christian Armory. We're driving there and we're talking and everything. And, and I'm at the age now where, you know, I live on my own and my dad and I don't really talk, talk. We just, he said, hey, Tony, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He said, uh, do you have any plans on marrying Christy? And I was like, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Because I don't know if she's the one that God has for me to marry. So he's quiet for a couple minutes, which is usually not good. And he said, he said, what makes you think that? Like, what makes you think that you have to find the one that, that God has for you? He said, just, he said, just give me a text. My dad always did that. He'd say something. He'd go, okay, give me a text. If you believe it, you got to be able to, like, and not like some fairy tale way of relating a text to a situation. Tony, I need a text that says, you need to wait on God for the one He has for you 
And if you pick the wrong one and your marriage goes bad, don't blame me type thinking, right? I said, well, I, you know, I said, I don't, I don't, I don't have a text that I just, I know that God has one person for all of us. And he's like, well, he said, give me a text. I don't have one. He's like, then maybe it's not true. He said, what has God told you about who you marry? Said, well, I know that I, I, I can't be married to an unbeliever on, you know, like, he's like, okay, that's good enough. He said, do you love her? I said, yeah, I do. He said, is she a believer? I said, oh, yeah. He said, then what are you waiting on? Right, so what if I would have done what all preacher boys do when they're in seminary and tell the girl they're dating when they think another girl is cute? You know, I just don't think it's the Lord's will that we be together. Right? And we, we do that. Like, that's shameful to do to a person. But we guys do that all the time. I'm talking about specifically guys in seminary. You, you find out you like another girl. You're like, uh, what I'll do so that I don't hurt her feelings or make me look bad is I'll say it's God's will that we break up. Right? How do you discover that? But anyway, it was like a light bulb came on. God has revealed who I can marry. Right? God has revealed. How do I know what I should do when I don't get my way? Well, I know what I can't do. I know that I, I can't be angry and mad and complain and murmur and not trust God. I can't be gossip to get what I want. I can't, I can't, I know that already. I don't have to pray at that point. Lord, uh, would you just, you know, uh, help me figure this out or can you bring this about? We're not asking for God's will. We're asking for our will. And don't think He doesn't know this about us. Don't think God doesn't know how wild our hearts are. Everything we need to live is in this book. Not because it's like a guide for daily life. And when you need to decide, do I pick this job or that job? The Bible will tell you. The fact that it doesn't ought to tell us something. Like, I, in other words, I don't need to pray to find out whether I should be a hitman for a living. Why? Because I know murder is a sin. Right? So, beloved, the, the, the point is, God has made provision for us to have rest in wherever we are in our lives. Right? He, he may have, very well may have somewhere else for us to be and to go. Right? But I'm here right now. We're here right now. If God wants us elsewhere, He will take us there. Right? And again, it, it isn't a sin to make plans for our futures. It's a sin when we make them as though if we don't, if we don't have control over our lives, they are not going to be good. That's where it becomes sinful. The point of the text is to remind us that we're not our own. Right? And in this, we take refuge because that means we are someone else's. And that someone else is the living God from whom every good and perfect gift comes. James already told us that back in chapter 1. So don't fear the Lord's will happening to us. Take refuge in the one who directs your every step, every day. Your Father, the living God. Would you stand, please?